Welcome. You're listening to the Voice of Vedanta podcast from the Vedanta Society of Southern California. Visit us on the web at vedanta.org. Good morning. I'd like to start, instead of with a peace chant, with a poem by Lala, who was a an 14th century Kashmiri Shoivite saint. We'll start. To learn the scriptures is easy, to live them hard. To search for the real is no simple matter. Deep in my looking, the last words vanished, joyous and silent, the walking that met me there. The last time I talked, we talked about um, religion and spirituality, and we'll do a tiny recap, the difference between religion and spirituality that I think made sense to me was religion is a unified spirituality, regimented, codified, and institutionalized. It's like-minded people getting together and pursuing similar interests. Spirituality is your individual relationship with the external world and the internal world. Now we have a lot of people who, I learned a new phrase, S-B-N-R, spiritual but not religious. (laughs) So in talking about last month, we talked about the individual relationship to the external world. And in Patanjali's yoga aphorisms, those are dictated by by the yamas, which are how we relate to the external world. If we don't have a relationship with the external world, we can't sit down and meditate. I think everyone can easily see that. So the five yamas are ahimsa, which I'm sure you all know, nonviolence, non-harming, non-injury. Satya, which is truthfulness and honesty in all your dealings in the external world. Asteya, which is non-stealing and abstention from theft. This is in ideas, things, emotions, people. Brahmacharya, which is has often been translated as continence, but it's way more than that. It's practicing the presence of God at all times walking in the awareness of the true reality. And then a parigraha, non-possessiveness. And we discussed these the last time we talked way too long because the clock didn't work. (laughs) But today we're going to talk about our individual relationship to our internal world, who we really are, the world of our mind and our emotions how we view ourselves, what we want to make of ourselves, uh, what we think the world sees us as. Um, And in Patanjali's yoga aphorisms, this is covered by the niyamas. And they're the observances or practices of self-training. These are not anything that anyone puts on you and tells you you should do. The yamas basically follow societal rules. It's how society gets along. You can't steal, you can't hurt someone, you can't do this, you know. All society makes these rules. Now the niyamas are the things that we put upon ourselves. 
And in Patanjali's aphorisms, they are saucha, which is purity of mind and body, santosha, which is contentment, tapa, training the senses, austerities, swadaya, which is self-study and reflection on the sacred words, and Ishwara Prandihana, surrender. Surrender to the Supreme God, your guru, practicing the presence of God, devotion, dedication. In the Upanishad, we'll talk about each one of these, but training the mind and the senses is one of the most important things we can do. And I think everyone in this society realizes that because how many self-help books do we have? How to have a, an adult relationship. How to um, know yourself and make peace with the past. I mean, we have, I know in our bookstore, we have quite a few shelves of those. <laughs> and, I, and we don't have nearly as many as other bookstores I've gone into. This was something the Upanishads covered eons ago. It seems like it would be obvious that self-training of the mind and, and body would be absolutely necessary because you have to have a healthy body to, to be able to work on a healthy mind. If you're terribly sick, your, your mind is taken up with physical being. And you, can't, you can train your mind, but it's much more difficult. It's easier if you start very young training your mind. Then when the difficulties of old age come, you're ready for them. Um, <laughs> I'm going to quote another, an 11th century uh, Chinese Taoist. And she said, cut bram brambles long enough, sprout after sprout and the lotus will bloom of its own accord. Already waiting in the clearing, this single image of light, the day you see this, that day you will become it. So what we're going to talk about is cutting the brambles so we're ready to see the light when we get there. Now, when we talk about purity, I don't know. Sometimes I find it just a little easier to go for what's the opposite of purity. First, my idea of purity, because coming from a family of geologists, is when you find a pure substance, like pure gold, there is no other substance in it. So purity, me, to me, means the same without any additives. No dilution, no um, nothing added. So who are we if we practice purity? We have no uncleanness. We, we become one, pure substance or idea. This is what, to my mind, our goal in life is, is to become one with our interior nature, which is divine. And in order to get rid of the impurities, that's where we're going to start looking at. How do we become one pure manifestation of our divinity? We all have, you know, we come into this world with a whole lot of baggage from past lives. We come in with emotions that 
are triggered by God knows what. Suddenly you'll be in a situation and you're going, whoa, why did I react like that? And often we'll just ignore that. We will go on and, and just ignore it, pretend like, well, I don't do that that often, so it's not that big a deal. But if we take a look at why we react, if we start on the things of looking to, to remove the impurities, and how do we keep impurities from growing? Well, we watch what we put into our food. Everyone, There's a great movement on organic, non-poisonous, everyone watching what they eat so that they don't poison their body. But what are we putting in our minds? If you watch television, what movies do you watch? What Netflix? What YouTube? What are we putting into our minds to make them pure? Pure thoughts of God. If we, if we want God or that purity, we don't keep you know, piling on a lot of things for distraction. Well, we all do. I mean, I watch television, sure. Because we're human. And for the most part, we don't have that supreme desire for God that puts everything else out of our mind. We still want to be a little distracted. We're still having kind of a good time. So there have been different... Um, saints who have given it ways to stop these, imp, what we call, impure thoughts. I don't call them that. I call them distractions. Because we are, our basic nature is purity and divinity, but we do distract ourselves. And the saints and sages have said, well, think to yourself, this is not leading me to God or to my real self. It's harmful to me. I am basically not doing something for my own good. And if you impress that upon your mind over and over again when you have these thoughts, your mind will come into tow because it's really easily trained. It really is. But you have to have constant awareness of it. You have to look at it. And the other thing you have to do is you can't give way to despondency and think, oh, I'll never change. This is just impossible. I'm never going to break that habit. Well, when you think about it, it's not that hard to break that habit. We take up all kinds of things, but according to Swami Brahmananda, he said, banish all fear and all weakness. Never weaken your mind by thinking of your past mistakes. They're over, they're done with. And sin... Sin doesn't exist. Sin exists only in man's eyes. In God's eyes, there is no sin. One glance of his and the sins or actions of many births are wiped away. So when you stop and think about things that you're less than proud of, I'll put it that way, you're deepening the idea of that. Replace it with thoughts of God and thoughts of strength. Don't think, oh golly, well yesterday I said this, thus and such, and I shouldn't have said that. Instead think, next time I can say this. Next time I will be positive. I won't be negative. Don't think about the past. It's over. It's done with. It does not exist. 
And we spend a lot of our time rehashing the past. It doesn't make us happy. It doesn't help us. It basically weakens us and makes us not believe in ourselves if it's an unfortunate past. So our first shot is purity. We're going to get our minds pure. (laughs) And our emotions. If you love someone, tell them you love them. You never know what's going to happen in this life or how many times more you will see someone. So take every opportunity to tell them that you love them. Um, Contentment is the next niyama. And what is content? A lot of people think it's a little boring. I mean, you know, there's no excitement in it. There's no adrenaline in it. It's being satisfied with what you have right now. I read a card the other day, and it said, and when you're satisfied with exactly what you have, you're not anxious about the future, and you're not thinking about the past. You're not deciding, oh, you know, I've got to do this, I've got to do that. If a man is content with everything he has, then he is the richest man in the world because he does not desire anything else. He is content. Now, if a man, no matter how much he has, always thinks there's more, he's the poorest man in the world because his life is fraught with anxiety and desire. It sounds kind of lackluster, doesn't it? I mean, we've grown up on, or maybe you haven't, but I have, um, seeking excitement and uh, doing things a little dangerous, living a little tiny bit on the edge. Don't do just what's safe. It's kind of boring. So contentment was not an easy one. It's one of the most difficult in today's societies because of the lovely world of advertisement. The lovely world of advertisement tells us we need these things so desperately. Now, you didn't even know it existed before you saw the ad, but we need it, and our life is not going to be complete unless I have it. The other day I saw an ad for a flashlight like no other flashlight in the world. I mean, you could drive a Humvee over it and it wouldn't break. And I'm going, really? (laughs) And then you can see it two miles, two nautical miles. And I'm going, oh, yeah. And and the first thing I know, I'm thinking, gee, we need that in case of fires or something. (laughs) I'm going, what? It didn't take more than 15 30 seconds for me to decide that would be great. (laughs) And I really, you know, and you stop and look at yourself and you go, what? You have three flashlights sitting on your chest of drawers for emergencies. Why do I need another one? We don't even have a Humvee that's going to drive over it. (laughs) But that's how seductive advertising can be. So stop and look at what you the world is telling you you need. And analyze it for yourself. Do I really need it? Do I want it? Have I heard of it before? We had another little, a little girl quite a few years ago. Her dad came and he said, she wants an MP3 player. And I went, what's that? And he said, I don't know. 
And I, she came over and I said, what do you want for your birthday? I want an M3P, MP3 player. And I said, what's that? And she says, I don't know, but everyone has them. <laughs> you know, and so much of our lives are, are, have been dictated by that. So we just, it just takes a little bit of effort to look at these things. It doesn't take huge amounts of effort. It's, it's not hard. You just ask yourself, really? <laughs> Do I really need it? And lots of, sometimes yes, you'll answer yes. And then get it, for sure. But not unless you really need it. So if we practice that kind of contentment, and desire makes the mind restless. So in a restless mind cannot be directed to God. So we always have to kind of quiet the mind. Quiet the mind and look at what we're really doing. And I'm going to quote Lala again, this 13th century Shoivite saint. That one is blessed and at peace who doesn't hope, to whom desire makes no more loans, nothing coming, nothing owned. Think about okay, so we've got we're thinking about contentment. Next thing is sense training. This is a this is probably one of the hardest for us. Fulfilling all your sensual desires will exhaust you, wear you out, and you will not be very happy in the end. Eating too much, drinking too much ruins your health, your self image and your energy. Exercising too much eventually will lead to oh, a replaced knee, <laughs> which I have. Um, arthritis, shin splints, all kinds of physical problems in your old age. If you do it to excess, this is excessive fulfillment of the senses. Um, looking for beauty or inspiration without restraint, always running after it. That's another huge distraction for your mind. And when I say this, running all over the world, oh, I just saw this, I just saw, you have to go see this, you have to do this. Sexual license leads to all kinds of physical and emotional problems. Any kind of lack of restraint or lack of discipline in the sensual realm, the five senses, will, as I say, exhaust you in the long run, distract your mind completely. But if you control the senses, as the Buddha said, in moderation, the middle path, it's not saying everyone has to be a, you know, a hermit in a cave and never go out. No, just moderation not excess. And that gives you so much more freedom because you have choice then. You're not being led around by your senses. You have the free will and the choice to make enlightened choices. If you have a spiritual teacher, now this, I found this quote rather funny, that teacher is a dunce who, knowing a pot has a hundred holes in it, tells his pupil, fill it with water. He is a true teacher who says, first mend all these holes, and then fill the pot with water. 
as long as you are led around by your senses, as long as you care for good food, for sweet sounds, for beautiful sights, you cannot hope to fix your mind on one spot or one idea. In this case, God. As long as you're led around by the senses. Another quote by Swami Brahmananda, who was Sri Ramakrishna's spiritual son. Be self-reliant. Self-effort is absolutely necessary for success in any field, but particularly spiritual life. So in sense training, oftentimes we have already given ourselves some license, started to indulge things. I'm, you know, it's part of growing up. It doesn't mean you can't moderate it or get the, the restive horses under control. <laughs> You can. You just have to start watching what you're doing. Next one is self-study. Okay. Now, if anyone's a budding counselor or psychologist, this one's really fun. I majored in sociology, psychology in college. And, of course, I immediately looked at all of these things and went, yes, I do that, yes, I do that, oh, I do that too. <laughs> because we are human. But self-study doesn't say to make yourself, you know, neurotic about your faults. Um, without it, we'll never recognize our samskaras. Now, samskaras are the tendencies we're born with from past lives. Those, that's the little package that we come with when we enter the world this time. And I think I had a f friend who had twin sons. And even the day they were born, lying in the cribs in the hospital, you could tell they were different. They looked exactly alike. But one was moving, one was quiet. Um, and I think any of you that have children know that your children are not blank slates, like someone at one point said. They come with a little personality. They come with, my mother told me that from the time I was like about three, I can do it myself. I don't need help. I can do it myself. Now, I mean, where did that come from? Irritated her. <laughs> In the yoga aphorisms, one of the ways of self-study is jnana yoga. Jnana yoga is what is considered the negative path to God, where you look at the entire world, everything you do, everything you experience, everything, every person you meet, every, every action you do, and you question it. You say, is this eternal? Is this eternal? Is this changing? If it changes, it is not eternal. Now, I find it helpful at times, but I also find it extremely negative. Not to say it's, it's not very effective, but most of us are too much identified with this, 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 that we can't really do it. We can start to train our minds to think, this is not eternal, this is not eternal, this is not eternal. But as long as we feel the pinch, as long as we have desires, 
we're in Maya. And this is real right now to us. And so there are other ways to deal with that. There's devotion, where you look at everything and you say, put the covering of God over it. Even if it's really unpleasant. And we're watching a movie called the Mahabharata right now, and it's going, we finally, finally got to the battlefield. And I mean, it's taken 70 episodes, 70 episodes, and I think we arrived on the battlefield last night. We haven't started the war. They're just reciting the Gita. But yes, you can cover everything with the wash of divinity. You can. Every person that you encounter, you can. A friend puts her ishta, her chosen ideal, if it's an unpleasant person, puts the ishta over and then deals with the unpleasant person as if it were her ishta. This changes the whole dynamic of every relationship. This absolutely, you don't separate yourself from the the individuals that you are not pleased with. They are all manifestations of God, but some of them are not pleasant at the time. (laughs) And we all have that experience. Um, If we can step back and say, yes, you are God, and why am I reacting like this? Why am I not seeing you as God? This is how we change our interior nature. We come in contact with our interior emotions and mind. And how do we do that? I just take a look at the way we grew up. Now, I I just found something in one of a box of stuff from my dad. And it was a 1952 um, duck and cover instructions on what to do in case of the nuclear attack. That's what I grew up with. Paranoia, complete. Now, we were all sitting in schools that had one whole glass wall, and we were going to have, you know, they were going to bomb us. They, whoever they were. And our protection was to cover our heads and duck under our desks. And this was going to save us. And at seven or ten, you believed it. You know, the whole wall was going to crash on top of you, and there was absolutely no protection whatsoever. But because we were told often enough, we believed it. And now I look back on that and I think, how in the name of Christopher can any of us trust anyone after being told, you know, absolutely over and over again this paranoia of they? I don't know. This is one of the things we work on. If you weren't born in the duck and cover age, you're lucky. Okay, now the suggestion of Brahmananda is you should have a routine. This is not exciting either. One should follow a routine in one's spiritual practices. Constancy is a great thing. Without it, no one can be successful in any work. You must have a steadfastness of purpose that we're you are placed, you must observe the routine. So long as your mind does not come under control, rules are necessary. Unless you have a routine, the mind will never allow you to do anything. It will prompt you to loaf. Make a routine of everything. Regulated life is the only means of physical and mental development. 
Now, when I first moved into the convent, I found this the singularly the most awful part of my life. I fought the routine every single day for 20 years. Hated it. Absolutely hated it. And if you want to know a routine life, join a convent or a monastery or the army. They're all about the same. It is routine. Um, now, after another 20 years, I've grown that I do it automatically. And you can get so much more accomplished without fighting every single minute of your day on the routine. I mean, why waste your energy on something that will only take 10 minutes if you just do it? Why do I have to spend an hour and a half arguing with myself about, I don't want to do it that time. I can do it later. I don't want to do it now. Routine is what gives you freedom. As soon as you get all of the regular parts of your life into a routine, get up, a little exercise, a little meditation, you know, make it a, a routine that you can keep. Don't make it something so austere and so awful that you're going to drop it after about two, two weeks, if you last that long. I tend to do that with exercise. I am a little lazy, so I think I'll exercise for 45 minutes every single day. Well, I'm never going to do that. You know, 20 minutes is maybe, 40 minutes maybe three times a week. Once you get real about what you can do, and do it that way. But the important thing is just to set the routine and keep it. It's not how much or how what or what anyone else says you should do. It's you get one that you can keep. We had a monk, I think some of you attended his lecture. He said when he first took up meditation, he thought someone said, you should do five minutes every day. He said, I couldn't do it. I couldn't do five minutes. I couldn't sit still that long. So I sat still for two minutes, and that I could keep. And he became a monk and has no problem anymore. But know yourself. Look at yourself and see what you can honestly do to keep up that routine. And then every single night, look over the day and see how much physical time you wasted not doing, you know, how much you got accomplished, how much time you wasted. Then also think about the mental time that you spent in thinking, in our case, thinking about God keeping remembrance, and how much time you frittered away just wandering, daydreaming. If you can lightly look at that, don't punish yourself for it, okay? We're not beating ourselves up about it. We're just looking at it. Because as you look at it, it comes more into control and into where you want it to be. You don't have to, you know, oh my God, I wasted two and a half hours just doing nothing. You don't have to do that. Just look at it and say, well, I could have. I could have used that time a little better. So the last of these niyamas is surrender. And surrender to God, to a higher ideal. You can call it anything you want. You can call it truth. You can call it Jesus. You can call it Buddha. You can call it Ramakrishna. You can call it Allah. It doesn't matter what you call it. Just know that there's a power greater than yourself. And that power 
if you surrender your small ego to that, and I'm saying the small ego, the one that thinks they can do everything, that I can do it by myself, no way. No. Wayne Dyer has this wonderful poster, and it says, Good morning. This is God. I will be handling all your problems today, and I will not need your help. So have a wonderful day. <laughs> now, the first time I saw that poster, I absolutely howled. I thought, that's so good. And then I realized, besides being really catching your attention with the humor of it, it's really true. If we can surrender to God, to the higher power, to whatever we call it, our day does go much easier. Because we're not fraught with, I have to think of the solution. How am I going to fix this? How am I going to fix this? We simply acknowledge the event. We don't put our little egos in there and decide what has to be done. And they have different ways of saying that. I mean, we have ones, let go and let God. Not I, but thou. Be in the world, but not of it. That was when my teacher told me. He said, when I first arrived, I had a nickname, and it was Ghee, which is butter. <laughs> okay, My family had called it. They had no idea of anything Hindu, but I was called Ghee. Our whole family had nicknames. You know, the tall, skinny uncle was Tub. Don't ask. Anyway, so I arrived with Swami Prabhavananda, and I said, oh, Hi, my name's Ghee, and he burst out laughing. And he said, well, then be like butter. Be in the world, but not of it. And that puzzled me for quite a long time. How do you be in the world without, but not of it? And I'm going to read you two more quotes. One of them is by a Zen Buddhist, and they write death poems. The day, the day they're, right before their death, each one of these, the Zen monks writes his own death poem, the message of his life. And this is my favorite one. It's by a man who died in 1360. He told his monks, don't have any celebration. Don't do anything. Just bury me. There will be no feast. There will be no th nothing. He got up in the morning, wrote this poem, sat up and died. Okay, and his poem Empty-handed, I entered the world. Barefoot, I leave it. My coming, my going. Two simple happenings that got entangled. Now, to me, that kind of says the whole thing of Maya. Swami Ramakrishnananda, who is a disciple of Sri Ramakrishna, said it this way. If you want, wish to be happy, if you wish to be wise, if you wish to be strong, Never let the world take you. The boat may be in the water, but the water must not be in the boat. So we may be in the world, but the world must not be in you. So I think we'll end there, and if there are any questions, feel free. Yeah. Oh no, how many of you have that situation? What if my wife needs something to be had? <laughs> and I don't need it. Well, 
I would say, if she needs it to be happy, then she needs it at this point in time. And until she reaches the place where she doesn't need it, it really isn't, you know, yeah. You can talk it over. <laughs> Whatever makes her happy makes me happy. Oh, well, then, then you have a vested interest in it, <laughs> Don. Yeah. What was it? Socrates said to one of his students who said, should I get married? He said, well, if you have a good wife, you'll have a happy marriage. If you have a bad wife, you'll become a philosopher. <laughs> so, any other questions? I have so many things here. I don't know how to form a okay. It's about the activity. And the interesting thing you were saying about we are coming into this life through things that we're smart trying to figure out how to work out here. Plus, we have our family of origin and all that. And I'm wondering if there's anything that can be said to dealing with that reactivity. Because in one way, it seems very simple, right? We see it, we know it. But then it the question was reactivity. How do we deal with it? We know what we're doing. We see it. We recognize it. But it happens. Um, I'm going to give you one of the things that really used to make me mad. Take a breath and count ten. I mean, that used to make me so. I I had a pretty fast temper and a quick reactor. Swami Swahananda helped me with that. He said, um, he of course said, you know, take a step back, breathe, and think before you wail in. That was very difficult. So he told me, he said, well, do you keep a journal? And I said, no, never been. That was, that was in my baggage on routine. Too much. Um, he said, well, then just have a piece of paper and just put a tick every time you get angry or react the way you don't want to and just count them at the end of the day. Horrifying, <laughs> okay? I didn't always come out with it out loud, but I put those ticks down. And the stepping back, taking a breath, and yes, doing the old count ten really helps because it gives you that little bit of time to take your emotions out of the pre out of the instant and have your mind think no i don't need to do that it's not easy the ticks were pretty easy and they're way less than they used to be <laughs> way less any other okay i know what i've done i have not turned on the television <laughs> because I read some of it, and I look a little, but getting involved in every single minute of it by choice will take my, my mind away from what my primary purpose is, and that is to see God. The world is always going to be there. There will always be politics. There will always be war. There will always be things that need fixing. But where do I want to put my mind? Now that doesn't that's that's not for everyone, and we need activists in this world, but it's not my it's not for me this lifetime. 
then I I was in high school and college during Vietnam, the you know Martin Luther King, all of that. And yes, an activist for part of my time then, because I felt very strongly about civil rights. Vietnam, I was not so. I had mixed emotions about that because my dad was a military man. So, you know, that was mixed. But it's not for me anymore. I will vote. I will always cast my vote because we have been given the privilege and right to do that. But I try not to fill my mind with all the arguments. I try and make an, inf an informed, from my perspective, choice. But I don't want to hear all the stuff that I know is going on. It just wastes mind space for me. I'm going to end again with Lala. Self inside self, you are nothing but me. Self inside self, I am only you. What we are together will never die. The why and how of this, what does it matter? You've been listening to the Voice of Vedanta podcast from the Vedanta Society of Southern California. Thanks for listening.